Well, again, good morning and welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here, and it is just so good. We're so thankful that you are taking the time and making the space to join with us and participate with us as we engage with God together this morning. Um, We do want you to know that um, uh, there are lots of ways you can connect with us, but there is one that we recommend, and that's at our online platform at onelifeseattle.org slash live. Uh, We recommend it because it's got lots of goodies there, little extras for you, uh, easy access to our online connection card, easy access to our online prayer, a Bible tab, uh, live chat, just a bunch of cool stuff for you. At the end of the day, though, we're super happy that you're able to connect with us in whatever way you can and whatever way works best for you. So just know that we're thankful that you're here. Um, With that, let's, let's pray. Dear God, we give you great thanks for this day and for your presence in our lives. And we ask that you would just continue to speak to us, be with us, lead us, guide us, move us, stir us, lift us, encourage us. All the things that you do um, in only the way you can. And even though we are not physically able to be together, we know that we are united um, and we can be together in you. So we give you great thanks for that and we ask that you'd help us to live into that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are starting a new sermon series in the book of Galatians. And you might be thinking, if you've been with us for the last nine weeks, that uh, didn't we just spend the last nine weeks in two verses in Galatians, which might scare you and think, at that pace, we're going to be in Galatians for about five years. Um, But that's not what we're doing. Uh, And even though we did just spend nine weeks uh, looking at two verses in the book of Galatians, going over what is called the fruit of the Spirit, our hope is that Having looked at that, we're now, as we go through the whole book, we will see how that fits into the context and the fuller story of that whole letter, and it should be super exciting. Um, Whenever we do uh, a study like this, going through a book, one of the first things we like to do is uh, get out some of the pieces of the puzzle that are going to help us figure out what's actually being said. Things like, who wrote it? What kind of literature was it? Who was it written to? What was happening in the part of the world at the time it was written, et cetera, et cetera. And all these things just help us set the context of uh, the letter and give us uh, some significant help in terms of finding out what that author was originally trying to say. And so first off, what I want to do is let us know what the genre of this letter is, uh, literature is, and it's a letter. Uh, And that really impacts the way that we're going to read it. Um, we know that there is usually a reason for writing a letter. Now, it could be that the author just misses the people that they're writing to and wants to reconnect with them. Uh, It could be that maybe there's a crisis situation in their life and they're reaching out for help. Or it could be maybe that this person is aware of some issue with the people they're writing to and they want to give some guidance or some direction on that. Um, And uh, it's, it's... the thing we have to remember, though, with a letter is that uh, with all that, those questions, we only have one half of the conversation, right? We don't have the other letters or the other things that were used to communicate with the author about what was going on. And so we have to do some, some sleuthing and some detective work, and we have to ask some questions. And one of the questions that I want you to always have in you as you're going through Scripture is, what was the original author trying to say to the original audience, right? What was the, the, the message supposed to mean in that time, in that place, to those people? And if we can keep that in our hearts and minds, I think it'll help us immensely as we begin looking for clues in this text. Excuse me. 
Now, the author of this uh, letter is a guy named Paul. Now, Paul was one of the early church leaders and an apostle of Jesus, meaning he had direct contact with Jesus. Now, the thing we got to know is that Paul's situation is a little bit different than the rest of the apostles, as he was not around with the original 12 who hung out with Jesus kind of in that day-to-day life kind of way. Instead, we actually meet Paul after Jesus' death and resurrection, and his name isn't Paul, it's Saul, and he's a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were the Jewish uh, religious leaders at the times, and they had lots of struggles and conflicts with Jesus, and in fact were the ones uh, throughout the Gospels who were plotting to kill Jesus, had him arrested, and participated in all the events that led up to Jesus' death. Now, Again, at that time, Paul's name wasn't Paul, it was Saul. And what we find in the book of Acts is that he is attending and approving of the execution of Jesus' followers. And he's also going around to different cities and he's finding the followers of Jesus and he's imprisoning them. Shortly after we read this, we find out that Paul actually has an encounter with Jesus. And in the moment, Paul's thrown to the ground and blinded. And so he engages with Jesus at that point. And Jesus says, you're supposed to go meet with this person. He does. And this person lays hands on uh, Saul's eyes. And it is said that something like scales fell off his eyes. And then this sort of the the next step in what is this amazing journey that we'll hear more about in this letter uh, of Paul with Jesus to become the person that God uses to reach out to the Gentile world or the non-Jewish world. And it's Something that I want us to key in on that's really, really amazing, uh, that God would use someone who was a Pharisee, meaning that they were really, really invested in maintaining the law, which one of the key parts of that was you couldn't hang out with Gentiles. It was a big no-no because they were considered unclean, particularly because they were also considered to be idolaters, meaning that they worshiped lots of gods and had idols for those gods all around. And that made them unclean from that a law perspective. And so it's just, I feel like it's just like God to take someone who would have excelled in not being around the Gentiles and then was also approving of the killing of Jesus' followers and imprisoning them and then changing them not only into a follower of Jesus but also someone who would not only be with but would be ministering to and loving the Gentiles. So much like God. Okay, anyways, moving on. Um, uh, the, the letter is written, well, it's written in the late 40s and early 50s. And one of the things that I want you to see is that in Paul's life, um, he took a couple of journeys. And um, the first one um, is uh, he kind of stays on the northern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And I'm going to give you uh, a little map here. I, hopefully it's coming up. Uh, There we go. Uh, And so this is a bigger picture. Then we're going to zoom in a little bit to kind of that Mediterranean Sea area. And Paul's going to start his journey in Antioch, and he's going to head kind of north or south and west a little bit to Cyprus. Then he's going to head north um, up onto the the mainland there, and he's going to head up north a little bit more. And then he's going to head south and east a little bit, and he's going to do that a couple of times. Um, And then he's going to turn back. And he's going to basically go back on the same path that he did. 
And what I really want you to see about this, as Paul makes this journey back, though, is um, there's going to be an area that's going to show up as green, and that's Galatia. And so you can see how a good portion of this journey took place in Galatia. And so when we're talking about uh, who this letter is going to be to, that's going to be really key, is remembering that Paul had taken these journeys uh, through this area. And so the recipients of the letter are going to be these gatherings of Jesus followers in southern uh, Galatia. Now, um, one of the things that that means is that in that area, uh, it's, it's a highly, uh, highly populated Gentile uh, area. And so again, um, Paul is uh, taking this outreach and ministering to and spreading the story of Jesus to the Gentile people. And that meant that they uh, didn't come from a Jewish background and they didn't have really any sense of uh, maybe the Jewish rites and sacraments uh, and things like that. And those things just didn't have a big meaning to them if they were even aware of them. Now, in this area, the other thing you need to know is uh, that Rome is a significant player in this whole picture. The Roman Empire uh, has a significant impact on the life of Jesus' followers. And so if we go back to our map for a second, and you can see again there's Galatia and the area. And in a second, I'm going to flip to the next slide. And what I want you to note is anything that's covered in red would have been under Roman rule. So here is the red coming in. And this is all the area that's under Roman rule. So yes, right, everything on that map was uh, part of the Roman Empire. Now, what does that mean for our exploration today? Uh, it means that it was the law that you worship the Roman gods, which were often tied to not just the empire, the Roman Empire, but the Roman emperor, who at the time was Tiberius, Claudius, Caesar, Augustus, Germanicus. That is a name. Now, what uh, this all entailed was, was pretty uh, intense. So there were markers everywhere. There were statues and idols on a lot of the corners, and some of the streets were even named after these Roman emperors. And so the idea was is that everywhere you went, not only were you reminded of who these emperors were, but you were oftentimes, you had to stop, and you had to pay homage, and you had to worship. Right? And it's also said that there were daily, weekly, monthly, and annual festivals, parades, and just these moments that were set up for you to worship. That along with the household gods and other gods that needed attending to at various times and in different ways. Now, what this means for our context is that if you are a new believer, um, a new Christ follower, um, you are needing to exit that environment and enter into an environment where you're worshiping just one God. And so for these early gatherings of Jesus followers, um, it wasn't just that they were sort of belonging to some, some kind of unimagined new religion. It was that they were laying claim to this reality that they were the true heirs of Israel's ancestor Abraham. And it was to profess a new form of Jewish monotheism with the one God of Israel having now been revealed in a new way as the God who sent their son Jesus and then the Holy Spirit. So this was a big, big deal. How to, how to wrestle with this tension of we're worshiping the one God but at the same time we're required by civic law to worship these other gods. But there was one exception. And that was if you were Jewish, you got a sort of pass on this. 
as Rome was letting the Jewish populations in its various cities be exempt from these rules. And there are practical reasons for this, and some of it had to do that it was just a way to minimize um, some, some issues and conflict. But specifically in this, what I want to point out is the Jewish people had a history of being attached to the undoing of large oppressive governments. And not that Rome was necessarily afraid, but I think they just saw like, look, there's this unnecessary risk that we need to take or that we don't need to take. And so, uh, and thinking back as recently as 167 BC for the Roman Empire, um, there was uh, an Israelite zealot movement that staged a victorious revolt against part of the Greek Empire. And that revolt lasted seven years, and what it ended up with was an independent Jewish dynasty in 140 BC that lasted until 37 BC, so a little over 100 years. And so the Roman Empire has this knowledge available to them, and they're thinking, so what can we do? Can we make a deal with these communities of people who would rather start revolts than worship our gods? And so what they said was, we'll let you worship and pray to your God, but you have to worship and pray to your one God, but it's got to be for the emperor and for the empire. And so they formed a pact. You can do the things you want to do, but you're going to have to do them in the way that we say. And so these early Christians, they were starting, they wanted to seek this same exemption that the Jewish people had because that would relieve a lot of their problems. That would relieve a lot of the wrestling that they were doing. And this was all causing troubles with the local Jewish communities, the local Jewish Christ-following communities, and the local Roman communities. And so as we jump into Galatians today, this is the background. Right? This, this, all this stuff that we've just talked about is the environment that this letter is being written into and that all this stuff is taking place in. Now, uh, what I do want you to know is the one thing that I've left out is what I'm going to call the occasion or the specific reason why Paul is writing this letter because I want that to unfold as we go. Right? Kind of no spoilers on that one. Um, but I think what we're going to see today is that many of us have a stunted understanding of the gospel that we so often talk about. That the ways we think and talk the about the gospel have become rather focused and I think sadly limited. But the great thing is that what we can discover in Paul and in this writing is that he's able to speak to us and invite us into a much larger and I believe much more profound experience of the gospel. And so let's get to it. So our text for today is uh, Galatians 1, 1 through 9. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can certainly open it up to that spot and read along with me. Uh, or you can go to our Bible tab on our online platform, or the verses will be up on the screen as I read them. Uh, so here we go, Galatians 1, 1 through 9. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Christ Jesus and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said so, now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. So this is a pretty intense opening to this letter. And there's two sections that I want us to be uh, aware of. The first is verses one through five are really kind of a formal opening with a whole bunch of content in it. And then six through nine is kind of this Paul dropping the hammer sort of thing. Um, and, and it's gonna launch out of the foundation led, uh, laid out in one through five to really start building the house that I think is gonna be this whole letter. Um, And one of the things we see is that Paul is adding a bit to his usual opening. His usual opening usually reads something like, Paul, an apostle by the will of God, right? And then he'll often add, and and those who are with me, and then to the church in this location. But here, he gets really specific about his call to be an apostle, and I think that's directly connected to the reason why he's even writing this letter. And there's going to be more about that next week. But for our purposes today, let's just say that Paul is feeling the need to defend his call against some others who are accusing him of possibly not telling the whole story of Jesus and what it means to be a Christ follower to the Gentile Jesus followers in Galatia. And so he says, I'm Paul, an apostle, not sent from men or by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And so he's referring back to his calling, the moment with Jesus where he gets knocked down and blinded and that he had this direct interaction with Jesus. Right, and we're actually gonna read later on that there is someone who is sent by men or by a man that is part of the problem that's happening in the Galatian church. But the thing I think it's important to notice here also is that even though Paul is trying to combat some of the things that may be being said against him or about him, and he is claiming to have some unique authority in this, he is saying above all that anything he has, including that authority, is based on the reality of Jesus Christ dying for our sins and that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the room we walk into with Paul, the setting for the scene. It's Paul's heart, and it's completely tied to who he is and who he is becoming. And so from there, we learn that there are others with him and that Paul is sending this letter, not just from himself, but the others that are there with him. And we learn that the letter is to multiple churches in Galatia, which means that it would have circulated to those different churches at those stops he made on his journey in southern Galatia, and the letter would have been read for the congregation to hear. Now in verses three through five, Paul is gonna finish laying this foundation again for this house he's gonna build. We have a very typical greeting that says grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul really starts to get to work. And he has what I'm gonna call this, uh, the bulk of the foundation is this fourfold statement, right? And it's, he says grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the four things that follow, who gave himself for our sins, to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever 
and ever. Now, I want to try to quickly unpack each one of these. Uh, one, because it's really important, but I also want us to notice how specific and intentional, even in the very beginning of this, even just this introductory passage, Paul is being about his words, right? And, and this, this ability to craft something well. And I want to brag on Brian for a second, in that when Brian preaches... I think he does one of the best jobs of crafting sermons well like this. Like, I feel like the words he chooses, it's almost like a, a, a poet writing that he's so careful about. It. And I think it's one of the things that makes him such an incredible worship director and leader also is that he's very intentional about the songs we sing and what kind of story they're telling. And so props to Brian because he's just awesome. So anyways, but the first of these statements right? Jesus died for our sins. And Paul sees this as the central act of Jesus's crucifixion. And it's this action of self-giving love. And it's important to note that when we often think of Jesus dying for our sins and what that means, it's often heavily attached to us as individuals and us getting to be with God in eternity after we die. But I wonder if that is what Paul is thinking about. And I don't think it is. I think he has something else in mind. Paul says that Jesus' death for our sins was not aimed at people going to heaven, but at people being rescued from the dark powers of the present age that had enslaved the world. And there's a couple of New Testament passages that we can look at, New Testament statements that I think will show that this is true. Galatians 3.14, just later in this book, it says, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This is going way back to the Old Testament, this promise given to Abraham that God said, through your descendants, Abraham, the, the nations will be blessed. That's a very here, now present kind of thing, right? That we're living that out. And in Revelation 5, verses 9 through 10, it says this, and they sang a new song, saying, and they're speaking of Jesus here, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Rescued humanity is to be a priesthood on earth, here and now. The singers of this song note that this is what humanity has been made into. And we can do this because the gospel message of Jesus' death and resurrection here in Galatians 1 is that through these events, the power of the evil age, the present evil age, has been broken. And the life of the new age has already been launched. And so we can see with this why Paul is so intense about what he's saying here at the start of this letter. Right? He's going after all kinds of things. One of them is that one of the main issues um, with Gentiles for a first century Jewish person was that they were around so many idols and worshipped so many gods. 
And what that meant was for a person who was transitioning from they were in that system to they were going to become a Jewish person and follow that system of faith, that they had to make huge adjustments in their lives. And a lot of these were outward signs that they were leaving that past life behind and coming into a new one. And part of that was really wrapped up in practicing the the ceremonies and the practices and the rites and all the things that the Jewish people did. And that was how you would show that you were leaving your old life behind and joining this family of Abraham. But Paul's belief is that on the cross, Jesus already defeated the powers of evil and has done so by dealing with the sins and the, and the powers that keep people in the grip of those things. And I think we can see even in our day, just our day-to-day lives, that it's not that the things that have held us cannot still deceive us, right? And much like Israel who wanted to go back to Egypt, lots of times we keep getting in these circular patterns of going back to the same things that are not good for us. But what we know here is that the power of evil, the power of those idols has no lasting right over us. And so this is not so much about going to heaven or even eternity with God as it is about the launch of God's new age in the here and now in the midst of the very messy present age. So that's the first one, that he died for our sins. The second is this rescue from the present age that I just mentioned. And Paul's really alluding here to this kind of new exodus idea in which the dark powers are defeated and humanity is rescued from the grip of those evil powers. And as Paul was thinking about this this new people, this new exodus, I wonder if his mind wasn't going back and thinking of God's rescuing of Israel from the land of Egypt. As they were freed from the slavery that they had been under, God now offers freedom to all people from the slavery of sin and death. One of the things about this is, as Israel had hoped in that time for the coming of the Messiah, There were two ages, the present evil age that we've been talking about and the age to come. The present age was good, but also marked with sorrow, sadness, and death. The age to come was a time with no death and sadness would be wiped away and justice and beauty would spring to live forever. And Paul says that God has rescued us from the evil age. Now again, when we think about this, oftentimes we mean salvation, where we still live in the age but we really only get to enjoy the age to come after we die. But Paul believes that the gospel message is about something that has happened to Jesus which has made the world a different place and that the age to come has begun. Paul is saying that Jesus' followers are called to recognize that they now live in that different world and their lives should reflect that awareness. It's the second one. This rescue from the present age. The third and fourth ones, I'm not going to spend as much time on. They're super significant, but they're also fairly straightforward. The third one states that this is God's will that has both made this happen and simultaneously reveals the heart of God for all people to be reconciled and restored to wholeness and flourishing. And the fourth is that this is to all to God's glory. And a quote uh, from a good friend of mine, Shalise Stearns, who's also a theology professor here in town at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. She has said this, that who we are and who we are becoming is the glory of God. That as God transforms us, he is glorified in that. 
And so this opening for Paul is the soil, if you will, for the gardening of life formation that God desires to do in the life of all humans. It's the foundation, not just for Paul's arguments, his words, or his purpose for writing, but for his entire life. Paul sees the gospel of Jesus as a world-changing event that launched the new age of God in the midst of the present evil age. Following Jesus is not just a religious option for Paul. With the parameters set within the present evil age, and I think that, that, that Paul would say to regard it as that would be to sort of muzzle its challenge and break it down into manageable hunks, which is the very thing that Paul's rivals are going to be accusing him of doing. Following Jesus means instead walking forward in the power of the Spirit into the age to come that has already begun and discovering the new ways of being human that are open up before us. And so Paul takes that foundation and now begins to build. And it doesn't open very nicely. Paul will get to some positive things about the Galatian churches in chapter 3, but right here he just gets into it and, and he's coming in hot. He uses this word, metatithemy, that is translated deserting. He says, I'm astonished that you are deserting Christ. Now, the word is not found anywhere else in Paul's writing. It shows up in Acts and one time in the book of Hebrews, where uh, actually two times in the book of Hebrews, where it signifies just a change in position, right? just sort of a transfer of things. But, in the account of the Maccabean Revolt, which was the revolt I mentioned earlier that led to the independent Jewish kingdom that started in 167 BC and led to Israel's recapturing Jerusalem from the Greek Empire, there's uh, an account of this in uh, the books of the Maccabees. And 2 Maccabees, there's a moment where the king of Syria has tortured and killed four of five brothers and their mother in this family. And it starts with a king trying to force them to eat unlawful swine flesh, which is, which, is, which is pig, and it's completely against Jewish law, right? And so the brothers respond. One of them, the, the oldest one, I think, says, um, what do you intend to ask and learn from us? For we are ready to die rather than transgress the laws of our fathers, right? And after the first brother dies, the second brother says, you accursed wretch, you dismiss us from this present life, but the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws. And this goes on and on with each brother and their mother being tortured and dying for the sake of God and God's laws. Each of the brothers endured pain and suffering and they were honored in this story that they did not give up their faith in God and the law. And at one moment, when we get to the youngest brother and the mother who was still alive, we read this. <clears throat> it says, Antiochus felt that he was being treated with contempt. That was the king. And he was suspicious of her reproachful tone. That's the mother. The youngest brother being still alive, Antiochus not only appealed to him in words, but promised with oaths that he would make him rich and enviable if he would turn from the ways of his fathers and that he would take him for his friend and entrust him with public affairs. He refuses, says he will not obey the king, but he will obey the commands of the law that was given to our fathers through Moses. Now the word the king uses for turn away in this moment, turn away from the ways of the fathers, turn away from the, the law and all the things that they have just so 
aggressively attained to and died for is the same word that Paul uses in this moment. I think we see that Paul is is being very intentional with the word he uses. He's saying this isn't just a transition of a position. This isn't just sort of a variation, a little little side road off the gospel. This is a complete undermining of what the gospel is. Paul says in following these teachers in this other gospel, the Galatian uh, believers are turning away from the grace of Christ. It was a denial of God's grace expressed in the divine action of death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's going to be coming up a lot more as we go through this. Remember, we have the younger brother in 2 Maccabees' passage urged to turn away from the ancestral tradition, but Israel's God has sent the Messiah as a gift of pure grace, and Paul is concerned that his friends in Galatia are turning away from that. And so then Paul goes on and he says, look, if anyone, including myself or angels, shows up and brings a false gospel, let that person be eternally condemned. Paul pronounces a curse, a ban on this group and any others that should bring a false gospel. Because it's not just a variation on the theme. Because it does undercut the very nature of the gospel. And so Paul, being accused of doing this himself, is now going to turn it back on these rival teachers. But the thing I find amazing is he also includes himself and says, look, even if it's me and I come back and teach something that undercuts the nature of the gospel, let that one be cursed. Well, so what does all this mean? It's a lot of information in there. But as we step into the, early, the shoes of the early church, I wonder if we can hear what Paul is saying. And if so, what does that mean for us today? What does it mean for us to learn that the gospel, although certainly it has something to say about our personal salvation in the sense of being saved and and then we're able to experience eternal life in the presence of God after we die, but really that's only a part of a much bigger story that involves God launching God's kingdom in the midst of this present evil age, the one that we've been rescued from. What does it mean for us that the powers of evil to hold us in captivity no longer have the right to do so? What does it mean for the church, capital C church, meaning all of Christendom, to live as the priesthood to the world in service to God that we have been called to be? Because for Paul, this reality that God has released this kingdom into the messy present world through the death and resurrection of Jesus, launching this age to come, is, it's the basis for everything that he does. It is the heart that transforms us. And for Paul, this is what Christian transformation is all about. And so I believe we may actually find ourselves in a similar similar situation to the Galatians. Because I think we find ourselves in a time where Christian formation is often sort of broken up into different categories. The, The teaching of some kind of abstract systems or principles the ethics of personal conduct, the challenge of political witness or the practice of warm-hearted piety. But with just those, I think we have to realize we too are missing the point. I believe that all those things I just listed are vital parts of a whole picture, but the larger whole picture is what the formation must be aiming towards. Human maturity and with that Christian maturity is a whole person, whole being, whole society thing and to pretend otherwise 
is to collude with what I'm going to call the marginalization of faith within a secular world. That I wonder if the pressure put on churches by a latent need for comfort and ease that we find in the modern Western world might itself turn out to be a similar pressure brought to bear upon the early church by civic authorities. That says, please step into this neat little box we've assigned just for you. We will cause you no trouble because you won't cause any trouble for us, right? But step outside with that dangerous talk of one God and particularly with the subversive talk of Jesus as the true Lord, ruler, king, savior, Messiah, claiming that the time is fulfilled and that Jesus calls for worldwide whole person allegiance and no that we will be coming for you. So in our day, I think the societies formed by the Western Enlightenment are quite happy for the churches to say their prayers and debate the conditions for going to heaven where our real intent is to escape the present world after death and meaning we largely ignore it now. This is the implicit deal that has been struck. The church is packed with the secular state forms a comparable, I think, of Rome's pact with the Jews. And what Paul says in the gospel is even that division of sacred and secular, it, it doesn't work because the gospel is changing the entire world. All of it is important to God. But the question that Paul invites us and I think actually demands us to ask is what if people, what if we started taking seriously the Christian claim that Jesus is Lord and the Caesars of our time are not. And this is what we're going to be exploring through this series. An invitation to be living out the bigger narrative of the gospel of Jesus, the launching of God's new age through the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross, which rescued humanity from this present evil age. It's God's kingdom, present and active here and now. As we close, I have a couple of questions for us to wrestle with, and then I'm going to pray. Brian's going to lead us in a time of reflection to give us time to ponder and reflect on those questions, and then he's going to lead us in a closing song. But I do want to remind you also that the prayer team is available if you want prayer for anything, um, and you can always share your responses to anything we've done in this morning by emailing, or you can also use that digital connection card uh, you'll find in our live online platform. So here are the questions I have for you. First, when you think about the gospel of Jesus, do you typically think more of your personal salvation or the launching of God's new age where rescued humanity acts as a kingdom of priests? And it's, I know I've set it up so I, th there's one that I want you to say, but I want you to answer honestly. Just when you think of salvation, what, what's the first thought that comes to your mind, Right? And it's not wrong that in there somewhere is the thought of this involves me, because it does. But where do, where do we fit in the story? Or is the story all of a sudden just become about us? Secondly, what are any implications of Paul's claims that the gospel of Jesus is this much larger story of a world-changing event launching the kingdom of God in the midst of the messy present age? So really that's asking, what does it look like in your day-to-day -day life if this claim is true? Right? How does it shift from, if it's, if it's 
about something else versus if this is what it's really about. And then third, how does a larger view of the gospel impact your day-to-day life? Right? And I guess in there too somewhere I'd like to ask, uh, I had this moment where I said um, uh, sort of the gospel uh, and, and the launching of the new age and all that stuff um, is where we should be versus the, the Caesars of our day. And so I wonder if a, a fourth question could be, what do you see as maybe some of the Caesars of our day or your day? Like what are the things that you tend to find yourself drawn to uh, that aren't as helpful and oriented towards Christ and his gospel? So with that, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll head into a, a time of reflection and a closing song. God, I give you great thanks that you are constantly sort of widening our view, um, inviting us into bigger, I think, and deeper intimacy with you and bigger and deeper realities from that. God, I'm so thankful that the gospel of Jesus is so much more than I often think about it. I'm sad for that too, but I'm thankful that there's, it's just so big and so immense and has such like literally cosmos changing impact. Help us to live further and further into that and live further and further out of that. It would be expressed in more ways in our day-to-day life. Holy Spirit, I pray today you would open our hearts to new possibilities as we get ready to engage with Paul and journey with him and the Galatian church through this letter. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.